I want to, before we get started, recognize Coach John Seymour and the University of Mobile baseball team is with us right over here. So glad to have you guys with us. Yeah, they're having a good season. And uh, Rusty, many of you all know Rusty, our college pastor. He is also the chaplain for the team. So we have a strong connection with those guys. Always glad to have you guys with us. Notice we have many college students here today, even though they have exam week coming up. And uh, my mom always said that there was a point where um, if you hadn't started studying, you just ought to start praying. So I guess that's why they're here. Maybe they've reached that point where it's praying for a miracle more than it is studying is good at this point. Anyway, it's always good to have you all with us. Thank you all for being here. If you have your copy of scripture, look in Exodus where we just read this passage. This is a continuation of where we've been as we've uh, journeyed through the book of Exodus. We've seen this incredible picture on, uh, displayed for us, this intentionality on God's part to rescue his people. Uh, it goes all the way back to Abraham, chapter 15. God makes this promise to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. At that point, Abraham didn't even have a son. <laughs> Uh, wife can't have any kids, but God says, I'm going to be good on this promise. And he says, not only am I going to tell you that you're going to have a son, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who come from you. You're going to have a bunch of descendants. Not only are you going to have a bunch of descendants, those descendants are going to form a great nation. And he even goes further and he says, and there's going to be a time period when that nation is going to be slaves in a land that's not their own. But after 430 years, I'm going to bring them out of that land, and I'm going to bring them into this land that I've shown you. And that's the land of Israel. Of course, the rest of Exodus goes on looking at not only Abraham, but Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob has three or 12 sons, and uh, those 12 sons become the uh, fathers, if you will, of the tribes. A little bit differently, uh, people don't realize there's actually 13 tribes, um, if you really pay attention to it. The reason is you don't have a tribe of Joseph, because Joseph, his land is divided up amongst two of his kids, and that's Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have a tribe of Ephraim, tribe of Manasseh. We take one, get two out of that. I'm not really good at math, but I know that you end up with an extra one. So you have 13 at that point. Um, we like, well, how do you call them the 12 tribes of Israel? And the reason is because the tribe of Levi doesn't get land of their own. They are actually scattered throughout the rest of the tribes. And you really find the foundation of that here early on. So that's where the 12 tribes come from. Levi is the Levitical tribe. That's where Moses is from. That's where Aaron is from. And that becomes the priestly tribe. So a lot of those foundations we're finding right here. This is the roots of it with the building of the tabernacle. Now, again, I told you when I started that this is a pattern of God's intention to save his people. Uh, there was something very interesting last week that we saw in those first few verses of chapter 25, and that word is pattern. It says, I want you to build this tabernacle according to a pattern. Now, the reason I emphasize that word is because God always works in patterns. He always establishes these patterns that he repeats over and over again. The patterns could be numbers, the patterns could be sequences, the patterns could be names, but what you find is God is intentional about it and he repeats himself over and over again, and the reason is he wants to establish these truths so you can't miss them. So, for instance, you got 
seven days of creation, and then you have uh, seven feasts of Israel. You have seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. You have seven churches that are written to in the book of Revelation. So again, there's these patterns of sevens, and we could go on and on showing these different ways that God does these things. For instance, just to give you another illustration, if you go back to creation, you see that three days God separates things, and then for the next three days, God fills those things, and then it ends with a day of rest, right? Well, that becomes a pattern of how God carries out salvation. He separates his people from the wickedness of the world, and then he fills his people with gifts and gifts that they spend with each other and, and spend for his own glory, and then it all culminates in this rest of being in the presence of God and the kingdom of God. So again, what you see established early on becomes a pattern for what's fulfilled later on, and we see that same thing here. That's why we want to slow down and pay attention to what God is doing here because it becomes a pattern of what we're gonna understand later. Today, what I wanna do is just focus on this first one, begin to draw some lines, give us uh, kind of a a picture, a big picture of what's going on here. So as we go into the rest of this, we have some context, if you will. So the first thing I wanna point out is, when you uh, began this study of Exodus, one thing that we pointed out to you was the pattern of a Jewish wedding ceremony that's being developed in the book of Exodus. There are basically five stages to a Jewish wedding ceremony, uh, and you find them followed in sequence perfectly in the book of Exodus, culminating in what's known as the ketubah. Uh, For us in a American wedding ceremony, we would call these the vows. This is where the vows are exchanged, and, and there is these promises that are made between the bride and the groom, like, um, you know, I will love you and you alone in sickness and in health, and for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. Those kinds of things, we make a promise, and they both make the promise to each other. Well, we saw that with the 10 words. They established this covenant, and this is what I expect of you, and they all agreed to this as well. And then if you notice, right after that, That's where God called Moses, the 70 elders, Aaron, Joshua. They all came up there on the mountain, and they had this feast. And then the very next thing that you see is God giving Moses this pattern of building this tabernacle. Now, the important thing to establish first to see the importance of this is what does the function of the tabernacle? Well, it's not just for sacrifices and and just for worship. This is where the very presence of God is going to exist. So once this is all finished, God is going to inhabit the last part of that tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. That's where the literal presence of God is going to be. So think about it this way. God is going to come and live in a tent just like they do. And he's going to live in a tent among them, among his people. Okay. Now let's back up again. I want to show you how cool this is. So you have this incredible picture all the way through the book of Exodus up to this point of a Jewish wedding ceremony. We see the vows exchanged on Mount Sinai with the 10 words. Then we see a feast that they have. And then God goes and lives with his people. Same exact thing happens in every great story. You know, you think about it, there is a wedding where they come together, they make these promises. Right after the wedding, we celebrate a feast. We call it the reception. There's this great party. People come together. They sing, they dance, they celebrate the the ratifying of a covenant, in essence. And then what happens after that? The couple goes on a honeymoon, and they go and they live together. They habitate together. They share a house. They share the thing. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Exodus. And, And it's important to realize, because if you miss that, you miss the fundamental way God relates to his people. 
It's not on this religious level, it's on this relational level. It's a level that we all understand because we operate in these very same ways. And it also reveals to us God's intentionality. God intends more than anything to have a relationship with his people. And he wants to come and be among us. Again, it's so important to understand, this isn't a story about a bunch of people who are searching after God. This is a story about God who is searching after his people. They're not wanting and trying to figure out a way to go live up on the mountain with him. This is God ordaining a pattern and a purpose and a plan for him to come and live among them. Again, you have this problem. The problem is that God is completely holy and they are completely not. And so you have to have these mitigating forces or factors that can allow for unholy people to be around a holy God. Thus, the establishment of the tabernacle. Now, when you think about the tabernacle as a whole, what you see is a pattern of worship. What I mean by worship is this is how we are to approach God. If you realize it or not, worship is not just singing songs or listening to a sermon. Worship truly is how you approach God. So whenever you enter into worship, what you're saying is I am entering into this awareness of God's presence around me. So we sing these songs. Many times when we pray, we will close our eyes. I don't know if you realize it or not, because I think sometimes we just do things out of habit. But really, the, where the eye-closing thing came from was to tune everything out, is to focus on the words that I'm singing or focus on the prayers, to envision a picture of who God is and to be very aware that I'm entering into his presence. And, and that's even a, a little bit hard to understand, but I think we need to kind of make it a little more clear. When you talk about entering in the presence of God, it, it's not saying that God is over there somewhere and I have to enter into his presence. His presence is everywhere. We're just not aware of it half the time. So when we talk about entering into the presence of God, it is intentionally being aware that God is right here. God is in our midst. God is all around us. And that's important for us to understand. It's established in scripture. It's foundational in scripture. God is always present. We just aren't aware of it most of the time. And so that awareness is something that we have to be intentional about. God comes and lives with his people and gives them this pattern of worship so that they can approach him, so that they are aware of his presence with them. Now, these patterns that we find established in the book of Exodus, established especially here with the tabernacle, is not just a pattern for them, it's also a pattern for us. Just as he foreshadows for them exactly how to approach him, this is a foreshadowing for us to understand how we are to approach God. Now, you're going to see all these things in more detail. We'll go into much more explanation when we get to them. But let me just give you a 30,000-foot overview of why the tabernacle is important and the patterns that we see there. Number one, uh, go ahead to that slide that has a picture of the tabernacle, if you will. So if you notice this very big rectangle, the outer uh, borders of that, that is actually a fence. The fence is made up of these different posts, and in between the posts are these linen sheets, if you will. That's what makes up the courtyard, okay? So everything inside of that is the courtyard of the tabernacle. Each one of those posts are made out of acacia wood. Uh, on the bottom of the post is bronze. On the top of the post is silver. Uh, that all has meaning to it. We'll get into that a little bit later on. But that actually establishes the area that is known as the courtyard of the tabernacle. 
Now, this actually has foreshadowing in it as well. It has some significance and meaning. Let me just kind of draw some lines, if you will. Um, if you go back to the garden, when it says that God created or planted a garden, the Hebrew word for garden is the word gan, okay? Gan, literally translated, doesn't mean garden. It means walled off area. And so most gardens that you'll find even in the Middle East will be walled off. It'll have a walled off area and they'll have trees planted in there and vineyards planted in there. Um, so whenever God plants a garden for Adam and Eve, it is probably this walled off area. It's probably very large, but God probably put a fence around it. The reason we think that is because most of these gods have one entrance. They have one entrance, one exit. You walk into the garden in one place, the garden is there, you walk out the same way. Uh, if you remember the story when Adam and Eve get kicked out, the Bible says that God put an angel there with a flaming sword to keep them from going back in. Wasn't well, it interesting that there's only one angel? And the reason probably is because there was only one entrance and there was no other way to get in. And so the angel's protecting that one entrance for them to not go back in and not eat of the tree of life so they would eternally be in that condition of, of fallenness. Now, we also see in the New Testament, Jesus goes to a garden with his disciples the night that he's arrested. And if you remember that story, um, as the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, the disciples feel pinned in. Now, you think about that. Typically, we think of that garden as a big, wide-open area. Well, if it was, they could just all run in a whole bunch of different directions, and, and no one could catch them, right? But they, did, they probably couldn't because this probably was walled off. In other words, they didn't have anywhere else to go. Therefore, they were trapped. And that's where Jesus says, hey, you've come for me. Let these go. So they probably had to walk past them out of that entrance, out of the garden before they left. Now, <clears throat> the tabernacle is the same way. If you notice the very front part of that, it says gate. There's only one way into the tabernacle and there's only one way out. That's important to understand because when you get to the New Testament and the gospels, Jesus says, I am the gate. In other words, I am the only way in and I'm the only way to, that you can go through to enter into the presence of God. Again, remember, this is a process, progression, how we approach God. The very first thing is we have to go through Jesus. Okay? The very next thing that you find, though, in the courtyard is what's called the bronze altar. You also heard, hear it referred to as the brazen altar. The next little piece there is the bronze laver. You also hear it referred to sometimes as the brazen laver. <clears throat> that just means bronze. And the bronze altar is where the sacrifices are made. This is where the mitigation of sin takes place. There is a substitute sacrifice that's made on the altar. Now, the reason both of those things are made of bronze is because in Scripture, bronze relates to humanity. Gold relates to deity or kingship. Bronze relates to humanity. So notice, as you go through this, everything on the outside of the tabernacle itself is bronze. Everything on the inside of the tabernacle is actually gold. And by tabernacle, I mean that smaller little rectangle. That's, that's the tabernacle itself. The big one is the courtyard of the tabernacle. The smaller rectangle is the tabernacle itself. Okay? In other words, the, the literal tent that God dwells in. So the way you approach God in that progression, there's only one way in. The very next thing is there has to be a sacrifice. There has to be a blood sacrifice that mitigates sin. The very next thing is a place of washing and cleansing. So notice when you get to the New Testament, Peter says, repent all of you of your sins and be baptized. Okay, well, this is a picture of baptism or cleansing of the soul, cleansing of the body, because we, 
have a mitigation of our sins. We have a cleansing. And then you could enter into the tabernacle. So once those three things are taking place, now we enter into this more holy aspect of the tabernacle. And inside the first section, if you'll notice... Um, if you can see it, I don't know if you're close enough to the diagram to see it, but that tabernacle is divided into two sections, okay? It is the holy place, and it's the, what's referred to as the holy of holies is in the back part of that. What separates that is this big, thick veil, okay? Now, we'll get to that in just a minute, but when you walk into the first section, which is the holy place, this is where the priests would fulfill their duties of worship, this is where many of the ceremonies would take place. God meets with them, talks with them from there. Uh, when you walk in there, there are three pieces of furniture. Again, as I call it furniture because that's what the scripture calls it. You can't go to rooms to go and find any of these items, but you know that's, that's what scripture refers to it as, so that's what we'll call it. When you walk in there, there are three pieces of furniture. To your left is called the golden lampstand. Okay? Right in front of you is the golden altar of incense. And to the right of you is the golden table of showbread, okay? To the left, the light, the golden lampstand provides light for that whole room. Uh, there's a ton of symbolism in that, so I'm not going to get into that until we get into it. The incense is a picture of prayers that are offered before God, incense going up to the Lord. To the right is a picture of communion and eating and feasting with God. That's, a, that's what it represents, and we'll talk more about that a little later. And then in front of you is this big veil. Now, we are familiar with this veil. You know it from the New Testament. When Jesus dies on the cross, it says the veil from the, in the temple was rent from top to bottom. It was torn in two. This is the veil that it's talking about. It's a veil that was very thick and heavy. And on the front of the veil, woven into it, was this tapestry that would image these two seraphim, or these two angels. And these two angels are looking down, and they have their, their wings expanded up. Now, the reason that's on the veil is because inside the veil, you'll see the same exact image sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. So let's venture into that for a moment. The Holy of Holies is the next section. As you walk into the Holy of Holies, right in front of you, there's only, it looks like only one piece of furniture in there. It's actually two. The bottom part is a box. It's a container. That's what we're talking about today. That's the Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant has a lid that sits on top of it, but it's considered a separate piece. That's called the mercy seat. On top of that, the mercy seat is these two angels that look just like the one on the veil, and they have their wings spread out, and they're looking down at the flat part of the mercy seat. So you have one that sits this way and one that sits this way, and they're looking down at the middle of it. You know, on the Day of Atonement, that's the only time the high priest ever walks into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year, only on God's invitation, only with the blood of a sacrifice. It's also the only time he ever utters the holy name of God. And he walks in, and with that blood sacrifice, he splatters it on the mercy seat, right there where the angels are looking down. Now, we're going to save that for next week because we're going to talk about the mercy seat and the significance of that uh, later on. Let me just also paint a picture for you about God's intentionality about detail. Uh, whenever you see details, you should always pay attention to it. And should I also say that when you don't see details, you should pay attention to that. Here's what I mean. 
The tabernacle, the only reason we know how big the Holy of Holies is, is because God gives them dimensions of how big the tabernacle is supposed to be, and he tells them how big the holy place is supposed to be. But the scripture never says how big the Holy of Holies is supposed to be. Isn't that interesting? I'm like, well, you're like, no, not really, Jack, because if you get the big square, I've been in geometry before, and you have a little square, then you can pretty much figure out what the rest of it is. But isn't it interesting at all that the Holy of Holies is never given a dimension? I think that's important. Here's why. Are you ready for this? How many of y'all have ever heard the story about the priest when he goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he has a rope tied around his leg? And, and so that if he goes into the Holy of Holies and he sins or he doesn't do everything just right, that God's going to strike him dead. And if God strikes him dead, how are they going to get him out of there? Because no one else can go into the Holy of Holies. Therefore, they would tie a rope around his leg. And if he died, they would pull him out. Well, how would you know he's dead? Well, he has bells on his garment. And so you would hear a trishing. And then you wouldn't hear anything else for a little while. And you're like, uh-oh. And you give a tug on that rope. I'm like, no, he's not moving. We're pulling him out. Um, <clears throat> here's the thing. That's awesome, but it's not true. None of it's true. None of it at all. Anywhere can you find it in history. It's not in the Bible. It's nowhere. Um, number one, we know that the high priest did not wear the high priestly garments into the Holy of Holies. If you go study the Day of Atonement, uh, it's very specific. God says you take those off, which the high priest garments did have bells on them, but he takes those off and he puts on the normal garment of a priest because when you approach God, you approach him in humility. So he would walk in with just the linen ephod that a normal priest would have. So he doesn't have bells on him. The other thing is, you don't need to tie a rope around his leg. You can get into the Holy of Holies and get him if he died. You say, well, how, how, how do you do that? Well, the same way you get the Ark of the Covenant out. I mean, think about that. Whenever the presence of God begins to move and they have to break this whole thing down and, and move to another place, they got to get the Ark of the Covenant out of there somehow before they can move it. How did they get that out? Here's why. The Holy of Holies was never given any dimensions. So all they do is they pick the veil up and they just move closer and closer until they feel the Ark of the Covenant. They lay the veil over the top of it. They wrap it. They put animal skins across the top of it. And now it's ready to transport. And the Holy of Holies has now been contained down into the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Whenever they get to the place where it's time to set back up again, the first thing they sit down is where the presence of God is. They erect the tabernacle around it. The last thing they would do pick that veil up and they would back up until the marking off of the holy place, which was given the dimensions, and that would leave the dimensions that was left for the Holy of Holies. Now, when it all is set up, it's pretty cool. The dimensions of the Holy of Holies are a perfect cubed, which in biblical theology and perspective, uh, that perfect cube is a, is a picture of perfection. This is the only perfect cube that you have there in the tabernacle is that Holy of Holies place. And I think that's a beautiful picture of who God is and where he dwells and a reflection of his character. So again, it's important when you see details and it's also important when you don't see details, okay? And we'll see some other things like that as we get in. The main thing we want to do is we want to understand these patterns and understand what they re represent, what they relate to, uh, what they mean for us today. And, and again, it's what makes the gospels make sense. When you understand the God's pattern from the beginning, it makes sense of what the gospel writers are writing about and why they include the details that they do. Now, 
when you were to explain this tabernacle right here, if you were to say to somebody, tell me about the tabernacle, you would probably do a little bit like I did. You would start with the outside, right? You would say, oh, it has a big fence around it. It has one gate. When you walk into the gate, there's this. And when you go past that, there's that. Isn't it interesting, though, that when God begins to give directions to Moses, he doesn't start with the outside. He starts with the inside. He says, the first thing I want you to do is make this box. And this is going to be the Ark of the Covenant. And then you're going to see as God continues to give him this instruction, he's going to back out. It's almost like a backwards approach to the gospel. Why? Because the most important thing about the tabernacle is what's in the center of it. Now, even though this is not the logical center of the tabernacle itself, um, it is the center. In other words, the focus of what the tabernacle is about. It's about the presence of God and how you approach the presence of God, this holy God. We've talked about now God has his intention of being in relationship with his people. The only problem is God's this holy God and the people are not holy at all. So how do you mitigate those anti-forces? I mean, how do you come uh, and, and, and resolve that issue? Because the people can never approach this holy God or they'll die. So this is the purpose of the tabernacle is to create this pattern where there is a substitute sacrifice so that people can be washed of their sins, so that they can be properly represented, so that they can find forgiveness and they can have this relationship with God. All that is the foundation of what we're about to study for the next few weeks as we see each part of the tabernacle unveiled for us. Okay? No pun intended there. Unveiled. See what I did with that? All right. Verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length. Now you're going to wonder, what is a cubit? Well, a cubit was a very rudimentary way of measuring things. It's basically the distance from your elbow to the tip of your longest finger, okay? Well, hopefully that's your middle finger. If you have one of those weird sets of hands or toes, you know, you know, I have to adjust that a little bit, but typically it's that point to this point. And that's how they would measure things out that way. And it was pretty consistent because most people are about the same height. So that's a very consistent thing. You're like, well, what if somebody was taller? Well, they were not allowed to measure things then. Okay. So we'd uh, find that average guy to come over there and go, hey, will you measure this out for me? Because that was basically what a cubit was. So a cubit, cubit and a half would be that distance plus half of that. So that's kind of like the perspective that they would have in measuring these things out. Look how it continues. A cubit and a half, it's breadth and a cubit and a half, it's height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside, you shall overlay it. You shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. Now you're gonna notice this thing is just pure gold. Um, we mentioned last week, the value, today's value of this tabernacle would be $13 million. Okay, that's what it costs to build this. And it would fit inside of this room right here. Can you imagine spending $13 million on something that would fit inside of this room right here? Um, but that's exactly what it would cost when you factor in all of the gold that was used to um, create all of these things. Um, also, it would weigh about nine tons, all of the things together when you go to carry them. So the carrying part of it was very important. And that's what he's uh, giving them instructions about here. So they're going to have these gold rings, these poles that go through it. So why would give all these details? Again, when he gives details, you got to pay attention. If you go a little further in the book of Leviticus, it tells you who can actually carry the Ark of the Covenant. And it's only certain priests, and they have to be between the age of 30 and 50. 
Now, Leviticus gives those specific instructions. Well, why, you know, between 30 and 50? Because those are the smartest, strongest human beings. I, I'm between 30 and 50. It's the only reason I say that. But um, here, here's the thing. Now, it's not really that. It's a, God is being intentional about it. But it does make sense to something about the Gospels. Think about this for a moment. How old was Jesus when he began his ministry? He was 30. And there is this little line in the Gospels, because if you don't know this, you would just read right over it and not even pay attention to it. But Jesus is having this argument with the Pharisees, and they're like, what do you know about Abraham? He's like, actually, I've met Abraham. And they're like, you've met Abraham? And, and the line that they say is, you've met Abraham, and you are not yet 50. So the Gospels tell us that Jesus was 30, not yet 50. Okay. So again, I think that's intentional. Not that we couldn't figure out that Jesus at 30 only had a three-year ministry. So obviously he was less than 50, but I think it's important that it was actually established. He was 30, not yet 50. Again, all of these things are foreshadowings of Jesus' fulfillment in the New Testament. And this is the way they were to carry it because God wanted everything done in a certain way. A little bit later on in Israel's history, they're carrying it. They're not paying attention to these laws. Somebody puts their hand on it to steady it because it's about to fall over and the guy drops dead. Why? Because God said, this is the way I want you to handle this and I want you to take my laws seriously. So this is where it continues. He put, they put the poles in the side of it, through the rings, they leave it on there, nothing is taken out of it. Notice again, the last part of that verse 15, the poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Now, let's start with this. There are three arcs that we've already seen in the book of Genesis, this being the third one. Uh, the first one is obvious to you. That's Noah's ark. We remember that one. Remember God gave Noah also a very specific pattern on how to build that ark. He said, I want it to be so many cubits long, so many cubits wide, so many cubits deep. Uh, and there was intentionality because this was what God was going to use to save the ones that he chose to carry out all of his plans through. And that was the family of Noah. God literally was so patient with humanity that he let it get to the point that there was none righteous, only eight that he could save from the whole population of the earth. God gives him instructions. It takes Noah about a hundred years to build the ark. And then God tells him after he's put all of this together, very specific, what kind of wood to use, how big it is. But then he tells him that he has to use this pitch. And the pitch is what you put on the wood to make this thing buoyant, to make it waterproof. There's something that the scripture doesn't tell us though, that if you dig into it, you understand about pitch um, that's very important, is that pitch is not a permanent fix. In other words, if you put pitch onto a boat too early, um, the sun is going to bake it and it's going to cause it to crack and it's not going to be waterproof. If you put it on too early, in other words, you put it on right before it gets wet, well, because it's still a little bit moist, then all, what happens is it just breaks apart and it comes apart and the ship begins to sink as well. So the timing of putting the pitch on the ark is very important, which that's just another example of God's intentionality. Moses builds this thing on land. He has no idea when water is going to come, but God does. And God instructs Moses when to put this pitch onto the ark so that it's buoyant for the time period that he needs it to be buoyant for. And this is the instrument that God used to save the select chosen group of humanity to carry on God's plan. So the ark is a picture of salvation. Now, the second ark that you see in scripture is not so clear to see, 
but it's there, and it's in the book of Exodus, and it's very early on. This is when God, as his promises unfold, and now his people are slaves in Egypt, and now they've been there for that period that he told Abraham they were going to be there for, and now he's going to save them. There's this story that it tells us before it ever goes into the story of the Exodus, and it's the story of Moses when he was born. His mother knew there was something special about this boy, and Pharaoh was trying to kill all of the boys. He was trying to make sure that Israel didn't have an army to rise up against Egypt and fight them. So he was going to eliminate a whole generation of boys, which would be their warriors or their soldiers. Um, And Moses was a part of that generation. But his mother fashions a basket. The word literally is ark. And she does the same thing. She puts pitch around it so it will float. And she puts Moses inside the ark. And then she floats it out there among the reeds of the Nile River. Of course, you know how the story goes. Pharaoh's daughter comes up. She's probably coming for a worship ceremony out there to the Nile because they believe the Nile River was a god. She hears this baby crying. She has her servants go and fetch this ark from among the reeds, brings it. It's a baby boy. She takes him as his own. And that begins the story of how God God uh, redeems his people, calls Moses, and the Exodus and the Passover and all those things begin later on. But it's important to understand that that's the second time God used an ark to bring about salvation for his chosen instrument. Okay, the thing is, that's why we have to understand that the ark, again, is a picture of how God saves his chosen people. Do you hear that? Now, I'm not getting into the whole, you know, chosen, you know, what does that mean? And how do you become chosen all that? But I think we can very clearly establish that the scripture is the, the text that uses the word chosen. The scripture is the one that uses the term predestined, the predestined ones. Okay. So somehow God is choosing those who are the elect. Again, a word that the scripture uses. And the elect are the ones who God has chosen for salvation. So notice here again that the ark contains these, these three things. This one's mentioned here. You're going to hear the rest of them later on. But there are three things that they eventually put into the ark. And remember, the ark is representative of the presence of God right there on the mercy seat. And the ark contains something that tells us about God and his intentions. So the ark has always been this instrument of salvation. So now we are ready to dig a little deeper into this. What is inside the ark? What did God tell them to put in there? Well, the first thing it tells us here is that the 10 words were put in there. In other words, the tablets that God wrote out the 10 words on, technically Moses wrote it out. If you remember the story, if you don't, we're going to get to it eventually. God writes the first one with his own finger. He writes out the 10 words. Moses is coming down the mountain. That's where he sees them worshiping the golden calf. He throws them down and breaks them. He goes back up to get another set, but this time God has him write them. Okay. So those are the ones that end up in the uh, Ark of the Covenant. So we have those. We'll talk about those in just a second. I want to start with a golden pot of manna. Now, uh, y'all remember what manna is, right? It's like this bread that God used to feed his people 
uh, and it's a bread that came from heaven. So every morning when they woke up, it was like when the dew settles on the ground, instead they had this manna that settled on the ground. And it was like this, this flaky goodness. It was like Krispy Kreme donuts everywhere on the ground, if you could imagine something like that. And they were to go out and gather as much as they could eat for that day. They were not to gather any more than that, just for that day. That's all. God provides every day. The only exception to that was the day before the Sabbath, they could gather enough for two days because God did not provide it on the Sabbath because that was a day of rest. So they would gather enough for two days. If they did that any other time, it would spoil and go rotten because God only provided enough for that day and it would only last for the time period that they needed it. And this was called bread from heaven. Okay, so the first thing that we see in there is this gold pot of manna. God instructs him at one time to take some of that manna, to put it in there, and to put it inside the ark. Now, somehow this manna is preserved supernaturally in the ark. That is a picture of God's provision. God is going to provide. Okay, the second thing that we see is the staff that Aaron carried it budded or it, pro it produced fruit, and not fruit's not a good word, it actually produced almonds, okay? Now, what was the story behind that? Well, number one, you know if it's a staff that you carry around, this thing is not connected to any life source at all, okay? So it's not like a staff that's in the ground, this has been disconnected. So there's nothing growing out of it, it's just a stick that you use to, you know, maybe tap an animal uh, to get it to go in the direction that you want it in, or maybe to steady yourself as you're walking or climbing or whatever it may be. This is what they're used for. But there was this rebellion that was really uh, a part of, of who Israel was. And this rebellion was central to their, their, their fall, their depravity. Uh, we see it early on when Moses uh, is the leader of Israel and they begin to rebel against him. Even Aaron and, and his sister, they begin to rebel. And, and, and Moses is established as the the definitive leader that God has chosen to lead his people. There's even this other rebellion, Korah and some people, and they, they go against Moses. And God so makes it clear that Moses is my guy, that as they rise up against Moses, God causes the earth to open up. They all fall into it, and it just closes back up again. I mean, think about that for a moment. I mean, that's like a scary moment. And like, all right, Moses, whatever you say. Uh, I mean, that, that, that's there. I mean, just the ground opens up and just swallows them whole and then closes back up again. God is always about showing and proving who his persons are that he's chosen to lead his people. So the second thing we happen, and we see the rebellious nature of Israel again, when they really begin to question the leadership of Aaron. And so all of them are like, well, why does Aaron get to do that? Why does the leader of the Levites get to do that? And so God says, I want all the leaders of the tribes to come forward and to lay down their staff in front of my presence, okay? And so they would literally put it there in front of the Ark of the Covenant, put them right, stretch them out there. And the instructions was the one that produces fruit, the one that bears these sprouts, this is the man that I have chosen. Of course, they lay them out there. The next day they come in and, and the rod of Aaron had begun to produce leaves and almonds. And, and here's, here's what's amazing about it is it continued to do so, okay? This was God showing this is the person that I have chosen, okay? So again, what do we have? We have provision and God establishing the one that he has chosen, 
okay? And then we have the 10 words that are in there. We already established that, and that's what our scripture, our text for today tells us is that that's one of the things they were supposed to put in there. So there are three things that are inside the Ark of the Covenant. What does the Ark of the Covenant represent? Salvation, okay? It's salvation. It's how God saves his people. How does God save his people? For providing for those he's chosen to fulfill the law. Okay, do you see that picture there? Again, you can make uh, other connections and, and, and there's other relationships that you can establish those different elements of different things. But I think that's one thing that we can all agree on is that you see that pattern right there. God's divine provision for God's divine appointments for God's divine holiness. How in the world are we to approach a holy God? God will provide a way for those that he's chosen to meet the expectations of his law. Okay, so that's what the Ark of the Covenant represents there. Now, to back out for a moment and to tell you why that's important to understand the central part is because everything around it leads to that, leads to that conclusion, okay? Leads to that ultimate um, finality of why God wanted to be with his people and why we have the scripture as a whole. If you back out of it all the way, Go back to that slide, if you will, um, for me that has the picture of the tabernacle. So this is the tabernacle, and of course it sits out in the desert, the wilderness that they're wandering around in. Later on, when you get into the book of Numbers, God gives them instructions on how to camp around the tabernacle. Okay, so in other words, whenever they get there and they set up the tabernacle, God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to set up the tabernacle first. And then he tells them, I want you three tribes to camp at the north. I want you three tribes to camp at the south. I want you three tribes to camp at the east. And I want you three tribes to camp at the west. So that gives us 12 tribes that surround the tabernacle. And you say, oh, you told me earlier there was 13. Where's the 13th tribe? Well, that actually is the Levites, and God gives instructions about that too. They are uh, actually interspersed among those other groups. So there's part of the Levites that are with these, these three at the top. Part of the Levites are with these three. Part of them with these. And most believe that they camped closest to the tabernacle because they were the ones that carried out the ceremony. So they were probably up at the front of each one of those tribes. Again, it's important to understand their role was to mitigate, right? They, they were representing God to the people and representing the people to God. So it does make sense that where the presence of God is, the priests were the ones that in Isolated the rest of the tribes, okay? Now, the other part of that that's really cool is there's two ways that they could have um, camped around the tabernacle. One of them is pretty interesting because they say, some, some commentators believe that this is the way it was. If you could imagine one group coming off one side and following those boundaries, the other group following those boundaries the other side, and the other group following the boundaries this way, and the other group following the boundaries this way, from an aerial view, it'd make a picture of a cross. You know, the way that they camped, it would be like this extension off of each side. We don't know that they camped that way. Some people believe they probably just came in and they just camped and there was like maybe these divisions between where the tribes in, like in other words, a road in and a road out that separated them. So that would be more like a circle that went around there. I don't know which one it is. I don't think anybody knows. We may not ever know till we get to heaven and find out. But here's what's interesting about that. Either one of those, the point, the main point of it is still profound. And that is this. God is the center of their gathering. God is central to everywhere that they camped. 
Everybody was facing and focused in on where the presence of God was and where the tabernacle was, which represents how we approach this holy God. So this is all about centering ourselves. Now, centering for them was important physically because this was them being obedient to what God had asked them to do. But for us, it's also very important for us to center ourselves around God. If you think about the Old Testament and the mantra of the Jewish people, it comes down to the Shema. And the Shema says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Why, why is that central to their belief? Because they believe that they had to center their lives around God. He has to be the first and foremost. He has to be the one that they give their attention to. He has to be the first thought of their day and the last thought before they lay their heads down. He has to be central to their experience every day. And so they would remind themselves by yelling out the Shema every time they got together, whether it was at a synagogue or getting up in the morning or going to bed at night, they would often recite the Shema to keep reminding them we have to center ourselves around God. Now, I've told you this many times before. For those of you who have been here for a while, those of you who are new, this, this will be a good perspective for you. So the rest of you just bear with me. But um, we as American Christians are more influenced by Greek culture than we are by Hebrew culture. And Greek culture tends to compartmentalize life. Our medical world is, is really influenced by Greek culture. That's why you have a heart doctor, lung doctor, you know, whatever it may be. They kind of section themselves off. Greek mindset is to compartmentalize your life. So think about a tic-tac-toe board and there's all these squares and in these squares are the different aspects of your life. My home life, my business life, my, my um, fun time, my hobbies, whatever it may be. And we segment our life off, which is why some people feel totally fine acting one way in one place and acting completely different in another. So they go to church and they use one kind of language and they go fishing and use another kind of language, okay? Uh, that, that's why people are like that because they feel like, well, this is, this is this part of my life, therefore I act like this here. But the Jews, the Hebrews did not think that way. They thought life is not a whole bunch of compartments that we are filling in with things that we love. Actually, our life is more like concentric circles. So the Jews believe more like a, a target, a dartboard, if you will. You know, at the middle of a dartboard, there's the bullseye. And then outside the bullseye is another ring that's a little bit bigger, and then a bigger one, and then a bigger one, and then a bigger one. So every time you get a little further out, it's a bigger ring that surrounds all the rest of them. And, and the Hebrew people, the Hebrew mindset was, there's something at the center of your life that's impacting everything else, okay? There's something at the very middle, and whatever it is at the very middle, because it might not be God, but whatever's at the very middle is dictating how you relate to everything else in life. So if it's your sports that you're doing, or if it's your hobby, or if it's your work, or if it's a relationship, whatever it is that you have focused your attention on, it begins to impact your family, your job, whatever it is that's not that thing that follows behind it. You see all of those other things through whatever is central to your life. So if it's your dreams or your ambitions or a relationship that you have, it begins to impact how you relate to your family, how you relate to your academics, how you relate to your job, how you relate to the world around you. This is why the Jews kept reciting the Shema over and over again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, not just part of it, all your heart, all your strength, all your... This is so important for us to understand because 
you, whether you realize it or not, have centered around something. You've centered your life around something. The question you have to reflect on is what is it that your life is centered around? What is it that is central to your existence? One of the best ways to figure out what it is, if you really want to know, you don't really have to spend a whole lot of time thinking about it, I can tell you what you do. Go onto your smartphone, pull up your bank app, and see what you've been spending your money on. That is central to your existence. Another way of doing it is flip over to another app, hit that calendar app, and see how you've been spending your time. Because here's the thing, what you believe in, you spend your money on and you have time for it, okay? And things that you don't believe in, you don't spend your money on it and you don't have time for it, okay? So you can say, man, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but if your money and your time don't match that, and again, I'm not saying, you know, this, we're not gonna pass big Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around and take up a big offering this morning. That's not the point of this. The point of this is saying that those are central to understanding what's at the center of your life, okay? And I'm not saying you have to give all your money to the church, but what I'm saying is, do you spend your money on kingdom things, kingdom aspects of our culture, kingdom ministries that are reaching the things that God's heart is attuned to? Is your heart focused on those things? Or, or do you find yourself spending money on things that are frivolous, things that are here today and gone tomorrow, things that are about building your own kingdom? What do you spend your time doing? What do you spend your money on? You see, when we think again about the tabernacle and the very depths of the tabernacle, in other words, the deeper you get into the tabernacle, the closer you get to the very presence of God, this reminds us that everything is leading us or everything is preparing us for the presence of God. Everything in life, every situation, everything that we go through is preparing us to be in the presence of God. Because ultimately, we don't fully understand this or realize this until we see him face to face. That's when we live with God forever in his presence. So even what we are doing now is a foreshadowing of what is to be even a greater truth later on. So you should be, and I should be, at this day and time, practicing the presence of God being fully aware that he is here right now in the midst of trial and tribulation and in the midst of success and good fortune, right? Uh, whatever's happening around us, whether it's, it's we're living in plenty or we're living in lack, the presence of God is still there and he's gonna carry us through that and he's teaching us something about himself. Are you aware of the presence of God throughout the day? Because this is really, again, what does the... Ark of the Covenant point to, what does it really signify? Salvation. Listen to this. Salvation isn't solely the forgiveness of sins. Salvation is a process that leads us to the presence of God. Here's what I mean by that, and I think that you can understand this uh, very easily. I think when we talk about salvation, we always think being forgiven of our sins. But that's not what salvation is. That's a part of salvation. It's necessary for salvation, but that's not salvation. The forgiveness of sins is needed 
so that you can approach a holy God. That's salvation. The ultimate end of salvation is to be with him. It's to reenact the garden, in other words, to go back where we can walk with him in the cool of the morning and have conversations with him and him speak into our lives. That's the goal of scripture. That's the goal of salvation. It's not just being forgiven of your sins. It's not just taking care of that one aspect of your life. It's to go further. It's to press into the very presence and to become aware of a holy God who loved you so much that he wanted to come and dwell among you and he paid the ultimate price so that you could have that opportunity. And it's for your benefit, not for his. Do you take full advantage of what God has afforded you? Have you made yourself aware of his presence around you day in and day out? Have you centered yourself around this holy God? One of the things that we do as a church to keep reminding ourselves and centering ourselves is the Lord's Supper. We do this because Jesus said, as often as you do this, remember me. And I think, again, we could change that and say, focus on me, center around me. As often as you do this, remind yourself to come around me and to remember what I did for you and remember why I did it for you. It's not just to save you from your sins. It's so that you could be made right with God again. So you can enter into his presence. Remember, when Jesus dies, the veil is torn. Why? Because there is no separation between an unholy people and a holy God anymore. Why? Because we've been made right and whole through the blood of Jesus. That's what all of this points to in the tabernacle. So today, I think it'd be very fitting for us to celebrate in this way. Just as in the holy place, there is a table where they come around and they would commune there with the presence of God just on the other side of that tent. Praise be to God that we don't have a veil that separates us anymore. We have the very son of God who came and gave his life and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is the blood of the new covenant, my blood that was shed for you. Take it and drink it and remember me. So in a moment, they're gonna begin to play. We're gonna sing a song. And I want you to just reflect for a moment. I want you to just answer this one question before you come up here and take of the Lord's Supper. And it doesn't have, you don't have to reflect on it long. Maybe you need to, maybe you don't. But here's the thing. What is my life centered around? And if you have to answer it any other way except Jesus, I think right now is just a moment to utter that prayer. God, forgive me for being misaligned. Forgive me for compartmentalizing my life. Forgive me for being distracted. Lord, I want to center my life around you. Bring me back to that understanding. Help me to see you and to build my life around you, to make you the ultimate goal, ambition, center of who I am. Once you've done that and you've prayed that prayer, or maybe you're already there, maybe you prayed that prayer yesterday or this morning and you know you're good to go. Whenever the Holy Spirit releases you, you come forward. Let me speak the Hebrew blessings over these things. As Jesus broke the bread, he said, Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. Just as God provided manna from heaven, so Jesus was the bread of heaven. He was born in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. And when God put Jesus into the ground, the bread of life was put into a tomb. But three days later, God called bread back from the earth. Even that very blessing that's ancient, ancient blessing, there's a picture of resurrection. Likewise, Jesus took the third cup of the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, and he said, drink from my cup, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant. 
This is my blood spilled for you and your sins. Take it and drink it and remember me. And he offered the Hebrew prayer and blessing. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Where there is no wine, there is no joy, is what the rabbis used to say. It is through Jesus' sacrifice that joy can be established in our life. Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord in your life day in and day out? If not, it probably has something to do with what you're centering yourself on. Men, let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity to conclude our time of seeing you, hearing from you, focusing in on you. And Lord, now we need to respond to you. We need to respond to your word, your goodness, through a reflection, through an honesty. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts, set us free, set our minds free, forgive us of our sins, establish in us again a perspective of that new covenant so that we may center our lives around who you are. In the name that's above every name, Jesus our Lord, amen.